Hey, Andy. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you? Keeping well, apart from the cold in the UK, <laughs> I must say. I know it's cold where you are as well. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty Baltic at the moment, but other than that, I'm keeping well. Yeah, good, good. Good stuff. Um, well, yeah, as I mentioned, it's, it's great to have you on the podcast and thanks for taking the, the time out to chat today. Um, what I'd love to start with is for you to just give our audience an indication of, of who you are. So just a very quick intro um, and then we'll jump into the conversation. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. I'm Andy Foley. I'm a director of engineering at Jupyter One. Jupyter One is a data platform applied to security use cases. So we help companies understand what assets they have in their environment, uh, you know, what risks they may have and how they would go about remediating those. So we're pulling in data from over 100 different third-party vendors and helping users downstream understand what questions they can ask. It can be something simple, like find the unencrypted S3 buckets. It could be something more complex that pull multiple integrations together. Uh, ultimately helps people understand their security posture and steps they need to take to be in a better place. I specifically manage the site reliability engineering team, our graph database teams that are focused on graph and search, uh, data pipeline, and then a while back, I was in the managing the data collection integrations teams as well. So it's been a great experience so far, and uh, it's a good spot. Sweet. Cool. Um, so where I'm keen to start, and I know we briefly touched on this, is is go right back. Um, Want to understand your your journey into engineering and how it all started. So can we rewind all the way back to straight back to uni and, and how how you actually got into engineering in the first place, starting there, and then we can work our way through? Yeah, absolutely. So my father was an electrical engineer and I was really good at math growing up. So I kind of saw that example in my life and people told me, you know, you're really good at math. So you should try, you know, being an engineer. And I was like, sure, you know, let's see. And that, <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. Let's give it a shot. And my dad did it. So I had some, um, you know, some, some, you know, some experience seeing what that lifestyle was like. And, uh, you know, went to UCLA and, uh, I struggled. I had a really rough time my first quarter and I, uh, you know, partied way too much and I actually failed my first computer science class. And, uh, it was a learning experience though. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, I think, you know, failing to learn from failure is the biggest failure. And, uh, there was that new sense of freedom of going off to school. And, uh, you know, a lot of people told me, yeah, maybe you should do something different, but, you know, I really wanted to really want to stick with it and I really wanted to push through it. And, uh, you know, one of the funniest things about failing that class is I just, it was, it, it was a wake up call, but it was also, you know, the whole lead up to it. You know, like I said, I was really, having too much fun and way too much of a sense of freedom and a new, you know, being away from home and all that stuff. And, uh, I actually was doing so poorly in a class that I did the math before the final exam and I needed like a 92% to pass the class on the final. And it was the same day as the UCLA USC football game. And that's like the biggest football game of the year. And the final is of course scheduled like nearly the exact same time or a little bit before the game. So I remember telling my friends, you know, I was like, well, I really want to go to the game, but I am going to study for this test and see, you know, do the best that I can do and see what happens. You know, and I, I walked in there, looked at the first question. It was like, it's not in the cards today. I'm not going to get a 92%. <laughs> I was out of there and I was out of there in about 25 minutes. First one to turn in, went out to the game, had a great time. But, you know, it was like, it was tough. But at the same time, you know, I, I it was a learning experience for me. And then, you know, bouncing back from that following quarter, I retook the class and ended up getting an A. And they all straightened out and, you know, kind of adjusted to that new that new lifestyle of being away and being in college. So, you know, again, it was a really good lesson for me. It was the best thing that ever happened, really, to fail at 18 years old. You know, you learn really young, you know, what, you know, coming through adversity means. And um, yeah. it was a good experience for me, despite an early struggle in life. Yeah, that's interesting because we've all probably seen it, that there can be instances where people don't see that failure or don't get access to that failure at an early age. It's they kind of have a... Right a re not an easy ride but a straight ride where they don't experience that failure and failure is so key 
to yeah. improving and learning. And it sounds like yeah. having 18 years old was like, okay, this is this is not as easy potentially thought of it or I can't have as much fun as I thought I might need to so I better buckle down I mean it sounds yeah. like in good stead right yeah absolutely yeah going to a school like UCLA was also like you know the the bar was different um you know I was it's, it's a really good university so you know the people I was competing against um you know my my I'll never forget my roommate at the time who I had been randomly um you know paired with for for my freshman year of college he also was majoring in computer science and, and he oh, had wow. a picture of himself when he was five years old, standing on a chair, typing on a keyboard. And I was like, okay, that's what, that's what I'm up against. Right. <laughs> so, so it was, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely, it was a good experience and a good, 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 good learning. Yeah. Cool. And so, so talk us through the next step then. So you, um, you graduated from UCL, right. And then had an internship. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I interned at a startup called N grade and probably on the maybe 10th or 11th day of my internship, they were acquired by McGraw-Hill and we didn't notice those changes immediately because the internship was only a few months, but got a taste of a startup and really enjoyed it. And then, you know, went through that internship for a few months, went back to school at UCLA, finished up my final year, and then got a full-time job offer from, from the same kind of, um, you know, the same, same company and grade, but they've been acquired by McGraw-Hill. So really a job at McGraw-Hill and kind of jumping in there. Yeah. Um, so got a taste of startup and went to big company real fast. Sweet. And what was that, that journey like? Cause you spent what, seven years at McGraw-Hill, right? Yeah, I spent seven years at McGraw Hill, and luckily, over the course of my time there, I got my my hands on a number of different problems and a number of different engineering teams. By the time I was done there, I'd managed anywhere between ten and fifteen teams, not necessarily all at once, but I had been moved around to solve kind of the biggest problems of the day. Um, so, you know, when I first started there, I was a an engineer on a team of three. I helped grow that team into a team of eight and assumed the the technical lead role of the team. We were focused on building integrations to connect different content providers. So McGraw-Hill's got many different ones of those. You know, some are really good at reading, some are really good at social studies, and you kind of have to connect concepts of users, classes, products, stuff like that. Sure. So I really focused on on that area. Nice, nice. And so talk us through some of the, the learnings within McGraw-Hill. There's seven years in an organization in the tech space. It's a long time, right? And I know there's a number of yeah. like transitions, a number of promotions. Uh, kudos to you for that. Um, if you look back yeah. over seven years now, yep. what would you say the sort of like the biggest learn is? What's the biggest take from that time at McGraw-Hill? Yeah, you know, the biggest thing I think for, you know, for aspiring leaders and for for people that are currently leaders and managers um, is to really push for what you believe is fundamentally right for your teams and for the business and to accelerate the growth of your teams and to accelerate the business in any you know, way you possibly can, especially if you want to be a leader to position people to, to go down that path. I think one of the funniest, one of the funniest stories from, from McGraw Hill for me, or one of the most interesting things that really formed my kind of management um, experience there. Uh, I was kind of put in the manager role because the team had got too big and we went from three to eight. And I think a lot of people get put in the management roles because the team gets so big that somebody just needs to do it. And, uh, you know, I was excited about it, but oftentimes it's that, or maybe you think you can do the job better than your manager, or you consciously choose the path of management. And then that one's unfortunately probably the path, path least taken in this industry. Uh, you know, but I became manager of the team and um, jumped into that. But one of my first, uh, one of my first big projects was like integrating some of these various services and leading a team towards that, that I kind of talked about. And, and, uh, you know, we had a monolithic PHP system that was pretty hairy and tough to contribute to, um, really challenging. And, uh, my manager at the time, you know, I went off to this offsite meeting to kind of plan some of these various projects coming up and he was really insistent that we do in the monolithic PHP system just because that was kind of what we had been familiar with and comfortable with and we were kind of hoping to expand on that for the future 
Uh, but from my newfound management tech lead experience, I didn't really find that system to be super sustainable to build on top of. Sure. So, you know, when I went out there to, to have some of these on-site, oh, you know, these off-site meetings to kind of talk about, um, you know, the project we had ahead of us, um, met with some other teams, understood product requirements, you know, had done some, you know, thinking to myself on it. And it was, it was clear that the specific project we were talking about had the capability of kind of rebuilding the entire underlying ecosystem of, of McGraw-Hill and how these different content providers interact with each other. Nice. So we were sitting on a pretty big opportunity, I felt like, and it was clear as day to me that we should not use the existing monolithic PHP system because it just wouldn't be the right thing to build on top of. But my boss had told me before going out there, like, you need to do it in this. So it was tough because I, I was kind of at a crossroads because I had talked to a ton of different people at those meetings. And we generally, we were all on the same page with the direction we want to go, but I was in a different direction from my manager. And uh, I ultimately decided to, to not listen to my boss and to go with what that group had decided. And that was a big risk. And, um, you know, I had a couple of other people on my team there. So it wasn't like me unilaterally making that decision. I wasn't like rebelling or anything like that. It was just fundamentally, I knew that was the right thing to foster growth for not only my team, but for also the business. And, uh, you know, I came back to the, the office after that trip and my manager was like, so, you know, how the, how those meetings go? And I was like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to build it and go in Kubernetes and we're going to kind of start over and we're going to end up, you know, we're going to build this great thing. And he was just, he was like, oh, that's, you know, interesting. And, uh, it was a big, you know, it was a big risk for me and wasn't fired thankfully, but, um, you know, it was a really good, uh, it was a really good risk to take. And I think it was the right risk to take. And it's, it's hard sometimes to find those right risks to take as a manager and a leader, uh, you know, and it ended up being incredibly successful. We delivered the project that had a schedule and it's still kind of the backbone for a lot of stuff at McGraw Hill today and yeah, we'll started a movement to, to do that. So yeah, it worked out really well. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and just diving further into that point then, because potentially engineers listening to this or, or even new managers, mm -hmm. there's that, that always discussed about transition, right? From from staff senior level into then people management and as you said it's typically not a, tra a traditional route it's like it just so happens in your case anyway yeah um, yeah so like what sort of learnings or advice would you give from from your experience going through that kind of just being thrown in the deep end to people that are at that sort of similar crossroad what advice would you give them from your learnings yeah, I think the big thing is like when you're a new manager, when you're a leader, you're really, you're a coach and you should hold your team accountable to outcomes and results and that dictate specific ways of doing something. There's a foundational difference between, or a fundamental difference between right and correct. Um, there's really no correct way to do something in this industry. There's a number of different ways that are right. Um, and you have to consider the trade-offs. And as a, as a leader, you need to listen to your teams and really understand from their perspective what those trade-offs are. Um, you know, and I think that was something you know, from that experience that, that I described, you know, previously that I, that I really learned. Um, and that ultimately it's important to build influence, keep an open mind, you know, and that previous story is not to inspire like rebellion against management or anything. Right. But in that case, I, I worked with the people, you know, worked with a team of people, you know, we came to the consensus together, um, you know, and we decided that was going to be the path forward. So those are a few things that I learned in my transition to leadership and there's a lot more at stake, you know, when you're in that position, um, so those are a few, those are a few different learnings in that transition, I'd say. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hot topic. And I think that, I don't think there's enough advice out there really, um, or, or material around it, because I've seen a lot of instances where we've worked with, um, different, various different businesses that, especially a couple of years ago, often promotions were given to keep people in the business uh, that when everyone yeah. was in office, right. And those promotions yeah. going up to like that leadership level. And it's like, P 
people are getting promoted there may just to keep them in the business so you've got like yeah. this massive gap of of knowledge around management and weak leadership um yeah. so, so it's, it's really interesting that um that yeah that you've had that experience like you have but also um maybe what trends are we going to see in the next couple of years are we going to see where there could be weak leadership at that level in the next couple of years because people have been promoted just keeping the business what's your thoughts there yeah you know i think it really i think it really depends i think it's important for a company to really establish different career tracks for for management and individual contributors and i think some companies do this better than others i think that's one of the biggest challenges of kind of startup to corporate and that's kind of what i've seen you know in my experience contrasting what i talked about from mcgraw hill and jupiter one you know, McGraw-Hill had something like that that was really clear and really, you know, and I think most big companies do, um, you know, smaller companies, you know, startups, I think, you know, you hope to have enough success that you get to that point um, and that you're able to have that for your for your teams. Um, so, you know, it kind of depends, I think, on the different, um, you know, the size of the company and so forth. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a big difference between the two. Yeah. And then let's talk about the next step then, because McGraw-Hill, obviously, massive organization, and then you take the step uh, to Jupiter One. So talk us through that. How, how was that, first of all, that transition, right? And what what did you, like, what, what did you learn in those first three months? Because I can imagine it was a, a, a big change in terms of process yeah. working. Yeah, and it's kind of actually funny before going to Jupiter One, one of the people that I worked with on that project I just described on one of the other teams in a different location referred me to Jupiter One because they'd love to go work at Jupiter One. So that was kind of how I got into Jupiter One, kind of, you know, was excited to go there. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest changes uh, when I first started, um, you know, I, what I learned at McGraw-Hill was really building relationships and building alliances was one of the most important things. Um, and not just in engineering with your team, but with product leaders, sales leaders, trying to understand what can your team do to make the situation better and ultimately help make the company money. Um, so that was something I did at Jupiter Wall, but one of the biggest things about the transition that was that was interesting is, you know, my first week there, I probably talked to like 30 to 40 people. And by that point, you know, I had talked to 25 to 30% of the company. Um, that would have been a drop in the bucket at a company like McGraw-Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that was one of the things I really focused on when I first joined there. Um, but also, you know, definitely, definitely a lot of chaos, but a lot of good chaos, you know, a lot of good thinking about different ideas, um, you know, challenging different ideas, um, you know, doing experiments and, a week or two in, hey, this isn't going to work, right? Um, a lot less kind of build up to thinking through how are we going to do this? What's the plan, right? It's like, let's just go and see what happens. And, and I've enjoyed that. I really, I really thrive in that. And I, I love that environment. Yeah. And what was the state of play when you when you joined, what, 18 or so months ago? What, what, did you have a, an engineering team in place and you came in to, to head that up or was it um, not that built Yeah. Up? Yeah, so I came in specifically to lead the integrations team that I alluded to earlier at Jupiter One, and then also the site reliability engineering team. And at the time I joined, our integrations team was probably maybe eight, eight to nine people spread across three different pods, and they were managing integrations well over 100 vendors. We didn't have nearly enough people to support that. Um, you know, in our site reliability team, we had two or three. So I scaled the integrations team from about eight to close, little, little over 20. Um, over the course of my first six months and then site reliability as well added a few more people too so yeah came in and really grew the teams and and, yeah yeah nice and what was the main decision behind joining Jupiter One specifically what what caught your interest definitely the product and the overall cybersecurity as an industry was super interesting to me Um, you know I think it uh, similar to what I, what I liked about McGraw-Hill is that I felt like we did a good thing for society with education. And I think cybersecurity is in that same realm where you're, you're helping companies protect themselves. And I think that that's, um, 
that that's that's attractive to me but but also really just kind of they when you go on recently just got in funding and all the people that i talked to in the interview process clearly everybody was was very smart very intelligent mm. uh, you know and i could learn from i could learn a lot clearly from going there and I, that was evident in a few of my conversations but you know the product the industry you know the people i talked to and the opportunity to 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 grow a team and to kind of build an organization and structure it the way that i wanted to um, that was also really attractive yeah, that's nice. And talking about that that growth then, so you, you came in, you kind of assessed the lay of the land, as it were, and you realized, right, you're probably short-staffed and, and you needed to add that headcount. Yeah. How, how was that experience, that first time sort of like recruiting for a startup um, and completely owning that? How, how did you find it? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, back, you're back, you know, in a bigger company, sometimes I think it's harder to get headcount approved and it's kind of like, you know, you have to go through various hoops. And so, you know, various you know, stuff like that, but um, you know, it was pretty, pretty much like consistently looking at our teams being like, where are we short? And it's like, you know, we're short here. Right. And I think the biggest change was kind of where we were going as a company. And for what I saw with the team was that, you know, when you start off as a startup, I think you have a number of people that are generalists and can do a bunch of different things. And you get to a place that the company grows where you need to start hiring people that are specifically very good at certain things. Uh, like I started looking for people that were really good at developing integrations for like on-premise systems that we needed to integrate with, right? That's not something that you just pick up and learn the next day. That's something that hopefully you want to try to find people that have a track record of experience or people that have experience with, with, with different different cloud providers and potentially point in information from those APIs. So I started looking for a more you know specific set of skills um, you know, to expand my teams in certain areas where we were clearly short. Uh, and I started kind of identifying those across my teams. And that was, that was the plan that I tried to put in place. Nice. Yeah, that's interesting. And and, and what does the, the differences look like in terms of when we're comparing McGraw-Hill to, to um, Jupiter One in terms of like management line? So right now you're a director of engineering. Uh, well, you're a director of engineering in both organizations, right? Um, how does the differences look, for example, if... Um, you work in a project, right? You're looking at potentially a feature change or an uh, or, or something, adding something. What what does the differences actually look like to doing that in McGraw Hill and then doing that at Jupiter One? Yeah, Jupiter One definitely. I have a large, much larger percentage of the engineering organization. I remember when I first joined, it was um, there was a lot of pressure because it was you know when I came in, I was immediately managing mm. ten to fifteen, ten to fifteen percent of the overall company and about a third of the engineering team. Um, you know, and even at, even at McGraw-Hill, when I was managing at one point, I had an organization, you know, over 50, um, that was still, you know, maybe 10% of, mm. of what was there. Um, so definitely you have to, you know, at Jupiter One, it's been, it's been nice. We've been able to move more quickly and most things have been kind of in my, my, you know, my area with my teams, but that also creates challenges. Then you have silos and you have to break those down because you don't want to have, you don't want to, you, you want to minimize dependencies, but you also don't want to have no dependencies because then you're not talking to the teams. You're not understanding what's going on on the other side of the, the other side of the house. Um, so that's been the big difference is kind of having much more, you know, control myself over the teams that I have and kind of positioning them um, to not get stuck anywhere because there's some other teams that we need to work with and, you know, we don't work with them as much and, you know, it's, it's a smaller company, so it's easier to do that. Um, that's been a nice change as well. Yeah, nice. Um, and I'm really interested to know, and maybe some of the audience as well. So, so you join Jupiter One, it's a it's a big change, right? And maybe the nerves. Yeah. Of, how do you go around getting that buy-in from your team? Because you're inheriting existing team, right? There's a new face. Everyone's like, okay, who's this sort of thing? So, what's your yeah. sort of like? 
process to to getting those those engineers on on side and and start to like formulate and build a, a really strong culture yeah great question i spent the first 30 days really really trying to to listen to learn and then talk to a number of different people so i've won the ones weekly with my team but for most you know for some people i've needed them more often i actually just took a bunch of notes during that conversation i wrote down kind of what i believe to be the top 10 problems that our teams were facing and uh, you know, kind of shared that with individuals. I was like, am I on the right track? Is this the stuff that keeps us up at night? Is this the stuff that we really need to address? And uh, you know, I got I got most of them. You know, I had some other ones that I was like, oh, you know, left that one off. I'll definitely add it. <laughs> but it was uh, you know, that was really important, I think, because the team just wanted to feel heard. And I think, especially at a startup, it's much more it's much more democratic, I think, you know, the culture is that where a lot of people want the ability to make change and you know, they've been there for some time and Whereas a bigger company can be more hierarchical, I think. Um, so I adjusted to that and kind of really put my, you know, tried to put myself in a position where I wasn't going to be the one, yes, go do that, right? It was more like, if you believe that's the right thing to do, then go do it. I'll give you some guardrails and I'll help make sure we don't make any, you know, bad decisions. But if you think that's right, let's go experiment and give it a shot. Um, so that was one of the biggest things, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. And And how did you sort of like, learn that approach i presume that obviously at mcgraw hill you would have got mentorship potentially and you'd been nurtured into sort of your your roles once you were there but is it like do you do you do a lot of extra reading around cultivating teams and management is it maybe a bit innate and you've kind of just felt yourself naturally being able to to motivate and um, cultivate teams yeah definitely definitely a little natural but i do read a lot um one of my one of my favorite books that was recommended to, um, you know, from Ed McGraw-Hill from a boss that I had for four to five years. And he's still, you know, one of the best mentors in my professional career. He, uh, he recommended it to me and it's, it's a book that's just all about choosing the right problem um, to solve. And if you, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're in a building and people are saying the elevator's slow, you could spend $10,000 and replace the elevator. You could slap a TV on the wall for a hundred bucks and that would make everybody feel like the weight's a lot slower or a lot faster rather. And uh, you know, what would you rather do? <laughs> I think that that's kind of, I try to push that with my teams where it's like, let's not reinvent the wheel entirely if we don't have to, but let's also call out where we need to make serious transitions or, you know, reorganizations of the way we're doing things. Um, so I do a lot, I do a lot of reading and there's some other, some other books like that, that I've read, um, turn the ship around is another good one that I've read that kind of, it's that, um, that bottom up approach that I described. Great. What do you say the first book was called? Sorry, I'm sorry. It's called, it's called, what's your problem? What's your problem? Okay, yeah. cool. Nice. Um, yeah. All right, sweet. And now, obviously, you're at uh, Jupiter One. You've been there for eighteen months or so. Are you able to share some may maybe insights to to what the you and the team are currently working on? Um, appreciate you can't share everything, but maybe some um, some cool stuff that you're currently building and working on. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, there are a few things that we recently released as new product features. We, uh, you know, my first joined Jupiter One. One of the questions that I asked, you know, why why people are not buying the product, kind of what I alluded to. One of the biggest answers was our inability to collect data from on-premise uh, systems. So, you know, systems are things that are behind a customer's firewall. Maybe that's an active directory or something like that, right? Um, so we really focused on that and built the J1 on-premises collector. Uh, you know, that collector, you, a customer can deploy that in their own environment, whether it's their data center or their own cloud, and it can pull down, you know, the resources that we need for that integration that we would normally run in a cloud-native context, but it pulls that information down and sends it out to J1. So you can still manage everything in Jupyter One, but it does allow us to collect data from that and customers in control of that. We're never reaching into their firewall or anything like that. It's all just pushing out. Um, so we've got a lot of traction on that. And that's been something that's moved the needle for, for integrations. Um, 
so we have that. And then we've also done some work on uh, device management and really trying to penetrate that market a little bit. Um, so yeah, those are a few different things. Yeah, nice. Sounds good. And if you now look back, I mean, you're, you're still in your journey at Jupiter One, but if you look back over the, the time you've had so far with the business, what's one decision that if you could rewind the clock that you would maybe do differently or change? Is there a decision that you've made that you can think of that, hang on a minute, I would have done that differently? Yeah, I think, you know, with my, the big one that comes to mind, my, my site reliability team, um, you know, fantastic group, really, really great team. And, uh, you know, we were managing a, an observability platform using Grafana OSS, you know, ourselves internally. And, uh, I think we let that go on probably a little too long. And I think I probably could have been a little bit more stern of like, you know, let's, let's do something different. We've since replaced it, but we took it probably several months longer to make that decision. And I think that was one that, um, really, you know, drained the team, but luckily we've been able to reverse that decision. Now we're on a much better path and then, you know, and, and the team's in a much better place and we're in a better spot when it comes to observability in general with, you know, the different vendor that we've gone with. So I think that that was one that, um, you know, I, and I, when I first joined, I kind of, you know, heard several people being like, well, this is the reason why we did that. And this is the reason why this was, you know, the, the decision, but, you know, the lesson for me was when, when you come in, if it, if something, if something isn't working and the team also thinks it's not working, then it probably needs to change quickly. Um, and even if there's been some, you know, some previous decisions that were made for different reasons, if those reasons are no longer valid today, you have to make that change quickly. And I think that's another big thing about the startup environment. It's just, you know, you have to be, um, if you see something that's not working, you know, it's on you to, to change the process. Nobody else is going to do it for you. Um, so that, that's definitely one of the big things I'd say. Sweet. Um, and I think one of the, the final questions that I would like to ask on my side is just leaving people with a, maybe a piece of advice, um, or, or learning from your side, again, going back, because you've, you've been through the IC route, you've gone into leadership, you've gone into the director of engineering space, you're, you led a team and you are currently leading a team, um, mm -hmm. For maybe specifically for engineers that um, they're on that IC journey, they're thinking about that next step into management. Um, what would your best piece of advice or biggest learn be? Do you think that would potentially yeah support them and help them with that step? Yeah, I would. I would say accept accept mentorship from anybody who will offer it. And I think uh, that's really key. And I think sometimes as you're, you know, growing in your career, you look to your, you know, as an individual contributor and you're early on in your career, you look to your manager for a lot of direction, a lot of guidance on where you should go. And no matter, you know, whether your manager is great or if you don't have that great of a manager, <laughs> accepting mentorship from various other people in the organization and kind of understanding who's going places and who's trying to solve specific problems you're interested in, build relationships with those people. Um, you know, I'll never, I'll never forget back at McGraw-Hill, I had that, um, you know, my boss I previously you know alluded to you know that I had for four or five years that's still a really great mentor of mine today you know he was not my boss at the time when he came up to me he was like hey you know I, I think you're one of the you know the younger rising stars here and I really want to get to know you and help you grow and and I was so thankful for it and at the time it was the first time somebody had done that for me um, you know I'm still friends with him to this day and uh, you know I think that is something that I would tell you know people hoping to go down this track like you know if there's people that are willing to help and lend a hand to your growth take it um, it doesn't have to always come from your manager or your reporting chain it's a great piece of advice or, or look out and seek actively seek right a mentor yeah. um, but because yeah. that will, even in your case right someone just putting a helping hand out say like andy um yeah you're good um yeah. <laughs> yeah. just having that um that helping hand will go a long way for people which is a great bit of advice yeah yeah absolutely yeah definitely uh 
Yeah. Sweet. Um, is there anything that you would like to add, Andy, um, before we wrap up? And I really enjoyed being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. And, you know, I kind of love going into the different, you know, different experiences that I had personally, but also what other people might be encountering as they transition between companies at different sizes and different industries and different objectives entirely. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed the conversation and uh, thank you for having me on. No, you're welcome. Yes, it's been a pleasure, dude. Appreciate your your stories and your comments. Um, I'm sure that'd be a good, a good value to our listeners. Yeah. So yeah, thanks so much, Andy. And I'll, I'll catch you soon. Yeah, happy to hear it. Thank you. All right, take it easy. Bye. Bye.